listening to a podcast from The National. Iraq's future was looking bright last year. After defeating ISIS and garnering more confidence from its Arab neighbors, the government was poised to rebuild a country ravaged by decades of instability. But recent protests that have left more than 800 wounded and 11 dead are dampening the optimism. These latest demonstrations started early July over Basra's residents protesting against high unemployment, electricity blackouts, and lack of fresh water. Reports claim people are getting sick while having to resort to showering in the brine water so characteristic of the Shat al-Arab. Following Iran's move to sever electricity to the south of Iraq, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia have provided aid. Both countries have an interest in maintaining a stable Iraq and one that can refuse Iran's influence. Outgoing Prime Minister Haider Abadi has made promises of providing jobs in a $3 billion stimulus package. But if the protests continue and the discontent continues, Iraq's long-sought progress could be derailed. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr al-Wesmi. This week, we'll take a look at the protests in Iraq and the regional implications of unrest in the country. Patrick Osgood is a journalist and researcher covering Iraq. He's written an article for The National on the recent protests that originated in Basra and spread north to the rest of the country. In your piece, you said Iraq, 15 years after the invasion, is running out of time. What do you mean by that? It's, uh, it's a case of looking at taking a step back and, and, and looking at the opportunity that Iraq has had, although a very fraught one, uh, over four election cycles. Um, and, you know, in a protracted period where um, a system of institutionalized politics you know, kind of a, a constitution and, and all the rest of it. It was sort of set in place as a, as a means to try and um, get Iraq onto a path of cohesion, stability, and even prosperity. And clearly these things um, haven't happened. Uh, in terms of uh, it running out of time, um, we're really looking at a point now where Iraq has several different kinds of overlapping crises, which are all seemingly kind of coming to a head in a way that uh, are starting to raise existential questions about whether Iraq um, potentially fails as a state. Um, uh, and those, those challenges are, you know, a, in terms of what we're seeing over the last few years, in terms of the rise of uh, militia activity in the country, uh, in terms of environmental crises, uh, economic crises, demographic change, um, population uh, movements as agriculture has increasingly failed, um, issues of basic services failures that you know protesters uh, starting off in Basra kind of have been uh, complaining about, um, and those coming together in a way that threatens to kind of. Um, really put a sort of nail in the coffin in the idea of Iraq as somewhere that's able to sustain institutionalized politics as a means of uh, governing itself instead of turning to um, uh, 
uh, sort of militias and alternative forms of authority and a kind of rolling sense of street protests and sort of um, almost kind of uh, mob mobilizations as a way to address grievances and uh, have people kind of calling out for money from the state. So, I mean, in the, in the article, um, I kind of mentioned two other countries by means of kind of alarm ringing um, comparisons. One is Nigeria and the other is Venezuela, um, both of which are kind of failing quite badly in terms of basic governance. Uh, Venezuela, because of, sort of ruinous economic policies, a lot of which are actually shared by members of the Iraqi economic class. And Nigeria, because you have this, uh, as you do in Iraq, a, a very poor and um, increasingly dysfunctional uh, oil producing part of the country where stability is only purchased on a short term basis by kind of going to various local non institutionalized politics figures and kind of buying them off, uh, which, in ten, which in turn kind of sets up a dynamic for more and more of that in the future and so more and more instability. Patrick, the demonstration started in the South. People took to the streets protesting a lack of basic needs, such as water or jobs, as you mentioned. But why did it spread to the rest of the country? Um, well, it hasn't spread entirely to the rest of the country. You're largely looking at the uh, affected provinces, really the, the southern nine provinces, and then also to a lesser extent, um, protests in Baghdad, although those, those have kind of dialed up a bit. Um, so when you're looking at kind of central provinces and so on, and um, uh, the provinces of the Kurdistan region in the north, it really hasn't happened there this, this time, although, you know, the Kurdistan region has had protests of a very similar nature before. Um, I think the first thing to bear in mind with these protests is while they've had this kind of recent um, spate of them that began uh, two and a half weeks or so ago, there's actually been several hundred protests in and around Basra um, over the last kind of uh, nine months or so. Uh, and some of those have been the sort of more generalized political protests that we're seeing now. And some of them have been very small localized protests around specific employment or services or contracting issues and things like that. But what you've seen is a generalized rise in a uh, public recognition that um, governance on a provincial and national level uh, isn't working for them and uh, that you know you then add the accelerants of extreme heat of the um, reduction in uh, electricity um, and the background context of an election whose legitimacy is somewhat questionable um, and a, a post-election process in which the political class seems to be um, wedded to the idea of transacting among themselves as normal instead of recognizing some of the urgent crises that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and you have a series of overlapping factors um, that uh, you know, ignited these protests more severely in the short term and have allowed them to spread. Um, so you know, we're not just dealing with um, protesters who are irritated because they uh, lack water, because they lack reliable power, because there is 
mass unemployment because law and order is degenerating and whatnot. These things have, start, have added up in people's minds to like a generalized sense of, of, of failed governance. And you kind of have anti-everyone kind of kick the bums out, um, uh, sloganeering and whatnot coming out of these protests. And these these are failures which, you know, that, that they're at their worst. And when you look at Basra City in particular, the, the, the stark evidence at street level of them is at their worst. But they've also been happening in places that, you know, seen some rise in uh, living standards uh, since 2003, uh, at Najaf, Kabbalah, Baghdad, um, because there is this more politicized sense of general governance failure. Is there any reason to believe these protests could turn more violent or escalate? It's an interesting question right now because we've had, um, uh, you know, we're in the third week, well into the third week of these protests. And initially the, there was a substantial amount of violence and rioting and so on. So you had uh, party offices sacked. You had um, uh, violent confrontations around uh, key pieces of energy infrastructure, uh, you had the Najaf airport was stormed and briefly closed. Um, and uh, you've had several protesters uh, killed in, in heavy-handed uh, crackdowns and whatnot. And we've seen a lot of arrests and, and all of that kind of thing. That said, the, the, the nature of the protests themselves seem to have settled down more into organized uh, rallies uh, with uh, less violence. Um, but at the same time, you don't really, they're sustaining themselves and you really don't have any kind of response on the government side that's making them go away. Meanwhile, kind of summer temperatures are still very high and whatnot. Um, the, the, the dynamic in play now is you have a government which is not trusted because it's made lots and lots of promises before, none of which have really been met. Um, and you have a dynamic in Iraq where Almost all authority in the country between the federal government and Kurdistan regional government, between the federal government and provincial governments, between provincial governments and yet more local governments, and between governments at any kind of official level and other people, so uh, tribal dynamics and whatnot, uh, is contested. So people don't know uh, who exactly to blame for the specific failures that they don't like, and they don't know who to credit or look to for accountability if things, you know, even start to improve or, or get worse. So we're at a kind of an impasse where the government's not really promising anything in a credible way. Political elite has been kind of bamboozled by this. Uh, the protesters don't take any of these um, uh, promises that seriously, and they're still continuing to mobilize on the streets. So the question is, what does the political elite do now? when they realize they don't really have much currency left, uh, you know, they don't, they don't have much carrot, so are they going to start to use the stick? I, I think there's a few, un, there's a few kind of unfortunate um, uh, uh, instances of messaging that we're seeing from the uh, various parts of the political elite of the country that that could happen. We could see some kind of wider crackdown to make this go away if it doesn't start to fizzle out. Um, there are a couple of examples of that. The, the Iraqi Prime Minister, Haider al-Abadi, uh, has you know, consistently talked about kind of infiltrators and whatnot into the protests. Other politicians have said that too. 
And the most intriguing figure in all this, the uh, the guy who notionally kind of won the last elections, the federal elections that were held in May, um, the uh, politician and cleric Muqtada al-Sadr, he has um, made some attempts to co-opt these protests. Um, a large part of his political uh, equity comes from his ability to mobilize street protests himself. Um, and he's kind of failed to really co-opt or put his arms around this, this protest movement that's uh, come up organically. And he now seems quite fed up with it and has started to talk about the fact that these protests are an invitation to chaos and whatnot. How, so how does this set Iraq back? I mean, last year it seemed Iraq had turned the tide by defeating ISIS. It seemed like it was getting its act together. But what about now with these protests? Well, the, the immediate, one immediate effect is that it's um, uh, preventing any progress in the formation of the next coalition government. So, you know, Iraq, Iraqi um, uh, uh, post-election um, government uh, negotiations are always fraught and take a lot of time. Uh, but we're seeing a hiatus here which could drag government formation even into 2019. Um, so we don't really, however ineffectual governance is, um, we might not really see any of it um, for, uh, for a while. Um, and with that, um, we are not going to see the kinds of deal-making and reconciliations with different bits of the country that, uh, that are necessary for generalized stability. So one example is the deal-making required to put the Kurdistan region and the federal government kind of back together on side after um, a, a very fractious 2017. Uh, you know, really more generally, is we're just looking at a crisis here of governance at a, at a fundamental level. We have this population of the country that provided uh, recruits to fight against ISIS, um, that, you know, uh, through which all of the money to pay for Iraq flows, so, you know, 3.5 million barrels also flow through Basra every day. And the common complaint is that they don't get anything out of it. Um, so we're, we're seeing, the, as these other crises in Iraq are starting to fade a bit into the background, they're still incredibly severe in any other kind of circumstance. So, you know, the question of how to uh, manage relations with the Kurdistan region, the, 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 the issues of reconciliation and justice and um, uh, the rehabilitation of areas that were uh, retaken from the Islamic State. Huge challenges. But those are almost now being put to side because you have the core majority population of Iraq, the Shia population of Iraq, uh, fundamentally don't really trust their government. You know, turnout at the, the last election uh, was less than 45%, it was much lower than that, in Basra and the, the, the lower nine provinces. And you have a political elite that has kind of uh, claimed to represent constituencies which have now burned their offices and are telling them to leave. So, you know, whatever about the other crises that Iraq has to face, in order to be able to face them at all, it needs a coherent government that enjoys popular support so it can get on with the business of rebuilding the country and bringing it back together and whatnot. These protests make it very clear those circumstances don't exist. Uh, there is now a new fundamental crisis of legitimacy 
um, that only serves to further weaken the Iraqi state and serves as an indictment of a failure of a political system uh, that's now got very entrenched and will be very difficult to change. There is a tendency to uh, simplify Iraqi domestic politics by defining them in sectarian terms. But aren't these protests an indication that it has nothing to do with sectarianism and more with domestic policies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was using the, the sort of these, these terms before, it was really more just to point uh, out to us as a sort of specific set of issues that, that kind of belong to different bits of the country. The fact is that all parts of Iraq did have these terrible problems around uh, desertification, um, the you know sort of failure of agricultural policy, uh, of unemployment, of lack of uh, private sector investment and opportunity, uh, terrible corruption and whatnot. All of these things are endemic to all parts of Iraq, and there's nothing sec- ethno-sectarian about that. Um, yeah, and also, I mean, I, I, I think what's interesting is um, the you know these these protesters and, and prior protests as well. They've always kind of been out ahead of what a kind of uh, perhaps an external um, view of Iraq has been. Um, and really, what these part of these protests have you know allow us all to do is to to take stock of the fact that you know using these labels to apply to these constituencies just plays into a a rotten system uh, internally and doesn't actually help us with thinking about Iraq's. Um, crises. I mean, people in the South, um, even before the um, uh, war against ISIS was, were over, uh, you know, they feel they felt a long, long way away from Mosul, even as they were signed, they were sending their sons there to, to to fight the Islamic State. And really, you know, people were just talking about at a very local level, terrible service provision, unemployment. The inability to uh, farm profitably um, and corruption, um, and uh, you know the, the the war against the Islamic State um, didn't put those things to the backs of people's minds in the South. I think it just kept it away from our attention internationally um, and away from the attention of the political class somewhat. Uh, you know, it's quite telling that uh, Prime Minister Abadi, who's now just a caretaker and may not um, uh, retain office, uh, ran very heavily on, you know, a victory coalition, as it was called, and on his um, successes in retaking areas from the Islamic State. It turned out that uh, outside of sort of Nenua province, where he did very well, the province that contains Mosul, in the south he did very badly. And in Baghdad, he did extremely badly. And the whole political class was way behind the curve in understanding uh, what Iraqis care about and the extent of cynicism and apathy that they have to the people who uh, govern them. I mean, let's, let's zoom out for a bit. Let's take a look at the regional dynamics. Did these protests sure. come purely from domestic reasons or is there any foreign involvement, namely Iran's relationship with the South? Um, this has come up a lot uh, um, uh, as um, a narrative from established politicians. So I mentioned before, you had this idea of infiltrators, um, and then you know some people are kind of speculating about what Iran is up to. Um, 
uh, there's there's really no evidence that these specific rounds of protests or prior rounds of protests that have happened in response to electricity or whatever um, come from the outsider, instigated by the outsider. Um, there are some factors that people look at, um, you know, particularly in Basra in the south, there are new factors of instability. Um, you have uh, in increased general criminal activity in the south, you have a huge increase in um, hard synthetic uh, drug issues, uh, uh, crystal meth and whatnot, uh, all of which appears to come in through Iran. And you also um, have some dependencies from Iran that have proved erratic and uh, disruptive to the south. So one is gas supply for power plants and the other is electrical supply into the grid, which was, uh, which was cut off by Iran recently, uh, potentially for two or three different reasons. Uh, and so um, these, these kinds of things have uh, got uh, Iraqis in the south whose affinity towards Iran has always been kind of exaggerated from the outside on the ethno-sectarian basis that you mentioned before. You know, just because they're Shia, they're not, um, they're not wedded to Iran, really. Uh, to, to, so these people are really kind of looking at the relationship with Iran and looking at their political leaders who seem to share more affiliation and dependencies with Iran than, than they're comfortable with. Um, and so you've seen uh, a lot of uh, slogans and banners and whatnot in these protests that have spoken out, spoken out very strongly against uh, Iranian interference in the country. Uh, whether Iran is kind of pulling the strings here or whatnot is is another thing, and and is is very difficult to to keep tabs on, given the fact that the Iraqi state has uh, severely restricted internet access as these protests have have uh, gone on. But generally, like no things are when it's fifty degrees, when the water comes out of your tap, um, boiling hot, and is kind of brine, you can't even brush your teeth with it. And you can't get power, and you can't get healthcare, and uh, you know, and it, it's uh, sweltering outside. You don't need somebody from the outside telling you to get, take to the streets. Uh, you know, uh, these these are organic protests first and foremost, and and, and even sort of uh, three weeks in, they largely remain so. Um, there's there's li little evidence of anyone acting as a kind of ringleader for them. Saudi Arabia have stepped up to provide some aid to, uh, you know, in in the form of diesel barrels of diesel generators. Uh, there's even uh, talks of maybe a meeting between Iraqi officials and Saudi officials. Yes. Why, why is it in their interests to do so? Well, it's not just been Saudi. You've had Kuwait step in as well with uh, some generators and things. Um, you know, I think what's interesting with the Gulf states' attitude to Iraq and Saudis in particular, um, you know, Kuwait has, has, has had pretty decent relationships with uh, Iraqi officials for a while over sort of debt and energy issues and, uh, and whatnot that have actually been very constructive, one of the few Iraqi uh, diplomatic successes. Um, uh, Saudi now seems to take a, a much more balanced view of Iraq um, and can see the value not having this place just like tip over. Um, and there's a recognition also that if they just write off the established Shia political classes, tools and run, well, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, they've kind of 
made that mistake in Lebanon to some extent, where they kind of flounced out of Lebanon only to see um, kind of Iran's hold on the, the, the country strengthen somewhat. Uh, you know, they can't really afford for that to happen in Iraq, a, a neighboring state um, and sort of the key balancing state in the Middle East. So, you know, after years and years of neglect post-2003 in terms of diplomatic relations and investment and whatnot, with the slight somewhat exclusion of the Kurdistan region, um, the, Saudi Arabia in particular seems to be taking a much more balanced view of Iraq. I think what where, where this is an indictment is you have sort of foreign countries um, that have, you know, been uh, historically slated by um, you know, some of the kind of more chauvinist kind of Iraqi politicians um, are now able to step up with real world solutions, as you say, uh, generators and diesel for generators and whatnot, uh, than, the, than the Iraqi political class themselves. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it can only be a good thing, but at the same time, it's an indictment that, you know, at this point in its, its kind of uh, post-2003 history, Iraq seems still unable to on a short-term basis, um, surge basic services where they're needed. Um, you know, even in the interest of sustaining a, a system which benefits uh, this political class. You know, you know that's when it's gone really bad, when these guys um, have got so greedy and inept that they won't even keep the show on the road for their, you know, to the extent that it services their own interests. And instead, it's bad enough that it begins to threaten them. Thanks to Patrick Osgood. You can read more at our website, thenational.ae. Beyond the Headlines is on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'd also like to thank Kevin Jeffers for producing the show. I've been your host, Nasal Wesmi. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.